Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. We've been walking through the Revelation uh, since uh, March, and we have one week to go. Next Sunday, we'll, be, uh, we'll conclude uh, this series. Uh, today, we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 21, uh, 1 through verse 5 of chapter 22. I want to begin with a question. How many of you uh, remember before there was such a thing as reality TV? Uh, some of you, uh, younger people, will, will think this has always been around, but, but really it, it came to prominence around 20 years ago. A reality of TV is purportedly unscripted, real-life situations, generally with unknown real people, as opposed to professional actors acting uh, out a skit on a set of some kind. Uh, this genre of television, as I said, really kind of uh, came to prominence with the show Survivor that was aired May 31st in the year 2000, just about uh, just over 20 years ago. And since then, as a genre of television programming, it has absolutely blown up. There are a myriad of reality TV shows. I won't even begin to list them. But one, I think we could call it a subgenre of reality TV, is, is a, a whole uh, set of programs about home improvement about renovations, about uh, restorations of homes. In fact, there's a network, HGTV, probably many of you have it, many of you watch it, um, which almost exclusively broadcasts reality TV shows about either real estate or or home renovations. Um, in, In fact, that network in the United States is what I have the stats for. That network became the third most watched network in all of the United States uh, in the year 2016. I don't know, perhaps it's uh, even uh, surpassed that now. Uh, there are so many shows on HGTV about home renovations, restorations, things like that. Uh, they, they tell the story of some old, run-down, dilapidated home or property and the renovation process. Uh, someone comes and fixes it up. They restore it. They make it new again. And it can be pretty cool to watch that transformation. I, I don't watch often, but every once in a while I'll flip it on and and uh, I don't know if you, you would agree, but once you start watching one of those shows, I have a hard time walking away because I want to see the end product. I mean, it, it's, it's exciting. There's something cool about watching this mess, this broken down, run down thing, be transformed into something beautiful, uh, transformed into to all that it can be, into what it was meant to be. This morning, we come to an absolutely wonderful portion of the book of Revelation. It is the vision of God, God's restoration of all things, of a new heaven and a new earth, of a, a new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, of a restored garden of Eden. And it's, it's exciting to watch what will unfold before us this morning as we look at this text. Before we do, let me remind you of a few things. John A disciple of Jesus, now in his mid-80s, is exiled in the island of Patmos, deposited there by Rome as a threat because of his proclamation of the good news of Jesus. He's been put there to die. And on the Lord's day, he is worshiping in the Spirit, and suddenly he hears a voice, a loud voice, like a trumpet. And John turns to see the voice, and he sees before him Jesus in all his glory and his majesty. And John falls down before him, and Jesus puts his hand on his shoulder and says, Do not fear. And he commissions John, Write what you see and send it to the seven churches. 
John writes this revelation and he sends it to the churches in, in Asia, the church in Ephesus, in, in the city of Ephesus, in Smyrna, in, in, in Pergamum, Thyatira, Cyrus, uh, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The believers in those cities are about to face a great holocaust of suffering. The weight and the might of Rome is about to come crushing down upon them. And Jesus wants to prepare them for what they are about to face. Uh, not all of them are ready. Some of them have, as we saw when we read through the letters, some of them have compromised with Babylon the Great, with Rome. Some of them have not been faithful. And so Jesus wants to warn them and encourage them, encourage them to be faithful, to be faithful in suffering, to be faithful even in the face of death. To that end, Jesus pulls back the curtains. He lifts off the cover and he shows them what is really real. He shows them what is really true, that there is an enemy, a great dragon who is filled with fury who is coming after them through his two agents, the beast from the sea and the beast from the land, the false prophet, that they will be under tremendous pressure. But he's also showed them that there is a throne that is above every other throne. And there is a glorious almighty one who sits upon that throne and the lamb who was slain for them. The last number of chapters that we've walked through introduced us to what I've called the tale of two cities, the tale of two women. Uh, first, we see Babylon the Great, Rome, the harlot. And now in the next, today and, and next week, we will look at the tale of the second city, the new Jerusalem, the bride of Christ. In the first vision of Babylon the Great, the harlot, Rome, chapter 17, we read of, of Babylon's sin, uh, how, how Rome has, had led the nations into idolatry, uh, into the worship of emperors, of, of false gods as gods, and how her, her, she had shed the blood of the saints. Chapter 18, we, we learned about her oppressive economic policies and practices that crushed people as she got ridiculously wealthy on the backs of others. And between that tale of the first woman of Babylon the Great and the tale that we are looking at today came the story of the final battle. It came in two parts. The final battle, uh, this story, uh, the story where God, Christ, comes as the warrior king and he defeats the forces of evil. The beast from the sea is defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. The, the false prophet, the beast from the earth, is defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. The dragon himself is defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. And all those who have refused to repent, those who have refused to trust in the lamb who was slain, sadly are thrown into the lake of fire as well at the great judgment. That's the text we looked at last week. So God judges all who resist him, all who stand against him, all the forces of evil, the beast, the false prophet, the dragon, and all who bear the mark of the beast. But now, with, with all that stood against God, cleared from, the, cleared from the stage of human history, we come to one of the most wonderful portions in the Revelation and indeed all of Scripture God's great restoration of all things. I invite you to follow along as I read our text beginning in verse 1 of chapter 21 to verse 5 of chapter 22. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city and the rod, with the rod and found it to be twelve hundred stadia in length, and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and the wall using human measurement, sorry, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. It, the great street of the city was of gold as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the, lamp, the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great city, street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. 
there's a lot here. And uh, what I want to do in the time we have together this morning is to just camp out in this text. And, and I want to highlight as much as we possibly can. And I want to do so under four categories of observations. There, the, these are the four things we're going to, the, the categories we're going to use. First, what is new? What is missing? What is central? And what is offered? What is new? What is missing, what is central, and what is offered. We encounter a new thing immediately upon the opening of our text, a new heaven and a new earth. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that what happened to the the earth and the heaven. Last week, we looked at a text where all of humanity appears before God's great white judgment throne. And, And we read that in that context that the earth and the heavens fled from God's presence. They ran away. The earth and the heavens, that is the created order. Uh, in, in the presence of God's holiness and purity, they cannot stand, they, they flee. Creation overwhelmed and flees from the scene. Well, here, verse 1, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. They, they had fled the scene. The old heaven, the old earth had fled from God's presence. They're gone, and now in their place is a new heaven and new earth. By the way, here, as we hear heavens and earth, this isn't speaking about heaven as some ethereal place up there somewhere. No, heaven and earth is, is speaking of, of the sky, of, of the, the cosmos and the earth. This is talking of the created order. There's a new created order, a new order, a new heaven and a new earth. This is exactly what was promised through the Old Testament, anticipated by Old Testament prophets. Isaiah 65, 17, we read this. See these words of God. See, I will create new heavens and new, a new earth. The former things will not be remembered. Not only was a new heaven and new earth that is a restored, a created order anticipated through the Old Testament, but also it is a thoroughgoing New Testament expectation. In 2 Peter we read, But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. Paul speaks in Romans 8 of, of how creation groans. It longs for its redemption. That is, the story in the Bible is, is, is that humanity, through our sin, have marred all of God's creation, and even the created order itself longs for redemption. It just groans for redemption. Think. Think restored creation. Uh, renewed heaven and earth. A, a new created order. All things set right. A new heaven and a new earth. Now, we're not to think, we are not to think that the the current created order in which we find ourselves is the final thing. Things right now in our world, and we see this really acutely right now as this pandemic ravages the globe, uh, the, the world we live in right now, the created order in which we find ourselves, things are not the way they're supposed to be. But God is making them new. God is going to bring about a great restoration, a new heaven, and a new earth. See, part of our problem sometimes is that we, we can become too at home in this world and forget that God has created us for redemption. There is a second new thing that we encounter in, in our text, and that is the new Jerusalem. Remember, the time that John writes the Revelation it's the year 96 A.D., and Jerusalem, the city that was central to his life as a Christian growing up, 
through his early life. The, the city that he and the other disciples uh, traveled to together with Jesus on that night to celebrate the, the Last Supper. The, the city where he watched Jesus uh, arrest, be arrested and tried and convicted and crucified. The city of Jerusalem, as John writes these words, as Jesus gives him this vision, the city of Jerusalem is a ruin. Destroyed some 26 years earlier by Titus of Rome. It lays in ruins. But here John looks and John sees a new Jerusalem. He sees a new heaven and earth and he sees a new holy city, the city of God, the new Jerusalem, the city of David, the city where God, God dwelt. John looks and he sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to the new heaven and the new earth. I mean, this is imagery. We, we can get lost trying to figure out all those details. Don't think geographically. Don't think spatially. John looks and he first sees a new created order. And he looks and he sees the new Jerusalem. And then the new Jerusalem is, is a bride dressed beautifully for her husband coming towards him. John sees the new Jerusalem, the new place where God dwells coming. This is a mixing of metaphors. The church is described as the bride of Christ. The bride will dwell in the new Jerusalem, and yet the bride also is the new Jerusalem. This is just imagery upon imagery upon imagery. New creation, new Jerusalem, that's what we need to see. That God has renewed, he has restored. There is a new created order and a new city of God, a new city of Jerusalem, a new place where God dwells. Let's turn to the second question, the second category of observation, and that is, what is missing? And there are four things that are missing, or four verses that speak of things missing. First, there is no sea. Uh, verse 1, and there was no longer any sea. Does that mean that in God's new created order, that when we get to glory one day, there will be no ocean, no Beaches, no great surf pounding in on, on the breakers. Quite frankly, depending on who you are, that might not be good news. I, for one, really love the ocean. I remember as a young uh, adult, a college student, I, I drove down the, the Oregon coast and the California coast. I, I hiked the west coast of Vancouver Island, the west coast trail. And I love standing on the edge of the sea and just seeing the breakers roar in and crash. No more sea. What we need to grasp here, what we need to understand again, is that this is imagery, this is symbolism. This, this isn't about the hydrology of heaven. In, in the ancient world, the sea represented chaos. The sea was where forces of chaos uh, that sought to destroy came from. And, and so the, the forces at work in the universe that threatened to destroy, think with me, Israel was not a seafaring people. And, and though other nations were, God's people weren't, but even for those other nations, this was the common ancient understanding, that the sea was the, the locus, the location from which chaos came, which is why it's so significant when Jesus stills the storm in the Gospels. Uh, when the disciples see this and they freak out, why? Because, because only God has power over the sea. Listen to what we read in Job 38. 
Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no further, here is where your proud waves halt. It is God alone throughout Scripture who exercises authority over the sea. But in the ancient world, they lived with great fear because the sea was a place of chaos. And here John says, he looks and there's no more sea. There's, there's no more chaos. The forces of chaos seeking to destroy creation are gone. No more typhoons, no more hurricanes, no more earthquakes, no more disasters, no more tragedy, no more anarchy and war, no more sea. No more chaos. Second thing that is missing is death and mourning and crying in pain. Verse 4, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Who among us has not been touched by death and mourning, crying and pain? I've shared before, I grew up in a broken home and I remember one of my childhood memories was before my parents actually split was, I was going outside just trying to get away from the chaos and crawling into the doghouse and and crying as I sat there with my German shepherd. I remember as a young man looking forward to getting married and, and, and looking forward to hoping that I would marry into a family where there was an intact marriage and met Christine and we got engaged and two months after we were married, my father-in-law passed away of cancer. Just this past August, my sister-in-law died, leaving behind my brother and two kids. No doubt every one of you could compile a list of painful stories of people you've lost. You remember moments, times where you have mourned, where you have wept. You remember pain. Many of you have lost loved ones. You've stood next to a casket. You've seen and experienced firsthand death. Or you're racked with anxiety, anticipating, recognizing that one day that will come. Or perhaps you are running from pain. You're seeking to distract yourself, deaden those feelings, so you don't have to think about those things. But we all know in our honest moments that, that these things, death and mourning and crying and pain, are a part of, of life in this world, in this present order. Can you imagine... Can you imagine life without pain? Can you imagine life without crying or mourning, without death? Can you, can you even begin to wrap your mind around what, what we're reading here? Can it really be? Is such a life really possible? This is what Isaiah the prophet spoke of. We read this. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard no more. No more death. No more mourning. No more crying, no more pain. Those things will be missing. Third thing, there'll be no more impurity, no sin. We read in verse 8 of chapter 21, but the cowardly, 
the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. A bit later, verse 27, nothing impure will ever enter. It is, that is, the new city, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful. What, is, what does this mean exactly? I mean, does this mean again, does this push us in the direction of somehow attaining or maintaining our salvation based on our performance by being good enough? If we do these things, we're out? No, a thousand times no. That's not what's being said. In fact, the truth is all of us are guilty of some of these very sins, these things listed in this list, and, and certainly others, this is not an exhaustive list of sins. We all get that as well. No, this is not talking about us somehow attaining or maintaining our salvation based on our performance for God. No, th this is clear in Scripture that, that if we get what we deserve, we all get God's judgment. We get God's wrath, God's holy, settled opposition to our sin. We have all rebelled. We have all fallen short. There is no one righteous, not even one, we read in Romans 3. No, every one of us who will enter into God's new creation will do so solely on the basis of his grace and mercy, solely on the basis of what Christ accomplished on the cross. So if that's true, and I contend that it is, that is the message of the gospel proclaimed through the pages of the scripture, then, then what are we to do with this? What does this mean? Well, let's look briefly at this list. I, I want you to notice what comes first and what comes last, because in the, in the Bible, whenever we come to a list, those are places of emphasis, places of priority. And, and so we need to understand that, and, and we need to remember as we look at this about the context. John is writing to the churches in Asia. Jesus is providing a warning. He, he is trying to prepare his people for what is coming. And not all of them are ready. If you go back to the seven letters we walked through, some of the churches, Christ was calling them to repentance because not all was right. They were, they were compromising with the harlot, if you will. They were, they were in bed with Rome. And so Christ calls them to repent. And you remember the pressure that they were under, beginning to experience as those in the province of Asia where the worship of the emperor was flourishing was that there would be tremendous pressure on them to to say, Caesar is Lord. And if they refuse to, if they refuse to throw that pinch of incense on the altar and say, Caesar is Lord, they would experience persecution, economic hardship, be called before the magistrates, and if they still refused, some, many, would lose their lives. And so they were under tremendous pressure to cave. To cave and say, Caesar is Lord. And to do that, to compromise. Daryl Johnson writes this. John is not referring to persons who on one particular day fell to the pressure. John, and more importantly, Jesus, is much more merciful to people under pressure of persecution. John is referring to those who continued over time to prove to be cowardly and liars. Such character traits and behaviors have no place in one who is called faithful and true. See, John is referring to those who continually chose to compromise. He's referring to those who persistently lied by uttering those words, Caesar is Lord, kurios, kurios, sorry, Kaiser kurios. The voice 
from the throne in verse 7 says, those who are victorious will inherit this. Christ calls his people to faithfulness. And so for those who thought they could compromise with the emperor, they could go through the motions and and really were not that committed to Christ, this this list is is ultimately not about those who have at one time committed these sins, but those or those who are uh, under pressure and, and at some point under pressure crack. No, this is a list of those who have turned their backs on Jesus, those who have rejected the sacrifice of the Lamb, those who call what is not God, Caesar, God, and by doing so at the core are liars. Such as these, these sins and those who practice them will not be present in the new creation. They will be missing. Fourth, verse 22, there's no temple. The temple is missing I did not see a temple in the city. John looks in his vision. He looks street after street, and he does not see a temple. Now, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of, of God's people to really to get this. No temple. This is unheard of for the Jews. The, the temple was the place of God's presence in their midst. Remember, God, uh, we trace this through the Old Testament, way back in Genesis when Jacob is running from his brother Esau, and he, he runs and he has a dream at, he lays down asleep, puts his head on a rock and has a, a vision, a dream, this ladder reaching from earth to heaven and he sees angels ascending and descending on that. And he, he wakes up and he calls that place Bethel, the place of God's presence, the house of God. And, and God's presence then goes, we encounter it when God delivers Israel from 400 years of slavery. God's presence goes with them in the cloud by day and a pillar of, of fire by night. And, and when they come to Mount Sinai, God's presence is on top of the mountain. And then when they build the tabernacle, God's presence descends from the mountain and fills the tabernacle. And years later, when Solomon builds the temple to replace the tabernacle, God's presence fills the temple. The, the temple is the place where God dwells among his people. Uh, this is why uh, exile and the destruction of the temple in the life of Israel is so utterly devastating because they lose the place of God's presence. Well, John tells us that there was no temple. But in our text, he says, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. But, but before we get to those words, the imagery of this text reveals something really critical, really important. Look with me at verse 9. Verse 9, we read this. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. By the way, just flip back to chapter 17 if you have it. Uh, here we have a perfect echo of what happened earlier. That's why the tale of two, two cities, the tale of two brides. Verse, chapter 17, verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute. Here, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the seven last plagues said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And, and so... John here is carried away to a, a mountain great and high. Now, we need to understand that there's no mountain as we get to the dimensions of this city. There is no mountain great enough or high enough from which to see this city. This city, as described here, if we take these numbers literally, and I would suggest they're symbols, not statistics, but this would be a city that is from Vancouver to Los Angeles, 2,200 kilometers. I mean, this is, this is big. John is brought up this great mountain this high and great to see, and he, he sees this city of enormous proportions. This is not about statistics. It's not about size. This is echoing Ezekiel's experience 
Ezekiel, when he receives his vision of the restored temple, it was given to him on a very high mountain. But here, look what we read. John looks and he sees the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. We've already seen this imagery. Uh, the bride, the new Jerusalem. But here it is again, lots of details in the imagery. But, but listen to this. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Again, how do you describe what is indescribable? The point is that the bride, the new Jerusalem, reflects the glory of God. The, the, the glory that we saw in the heavenly throne room scene. But there's more. Look at verse 16. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city, that is the angel, with the rod and found it to be 1,200 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. 1,200 stadia is about 2,200 kilometers. It's, it's big, okay? But it's laid out. Did you catch this? It's laid out like a cube. 1,200 stadia wide, 1,200 stadia deep, and 1,200 stadia high. 2,200 kilometers, if we go literally here with these numbers. I mean, the point is, though, that it's a cube. This is a cube, which seems weird, doesn't it? A, a, a cube, except... Except maybe there's something in the Old Testament that we should be remembering. In 1 Kings 6, we discover, we read the dimensions of the Holy of Holies. The, the Holy of Holies was the part of the tabernacle and then the temple after it. The Holy of Holies was that place where, where only the high priest could go and he could only enter into the high priest on the Day of Atonement one day a year and go in there burning incense so that, so that, there would, that he, he might not see the presence of God above the Ark of the Covenant. The, the very place where God dwelt, the very place where God was present was, was understood by Israel to be the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies is described here in 1 Kings 6 as being 20 cubits by 20 cubits by 20 cubits. The Holy of Holies is a cube. And what John sees here is, is a city that is also a cube. The whole city is the Holy of Holies. The whole city is the place of God's presence where God dwells with his people. Amazing. What is new what is missing? Third, what is central? Listen to the beginning of what we read in chapter 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. John looks and flowing from the throne, the throne that is above every other throne, the throne on which God Almighty and the Lamb sit. Flowing from that throne is, throne is the river of the water of life. God gives life. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Now we got to be careful we don't get lost in the imagery again. How can a tree stand on both sides of the river? Don't worry about that. That's not the point. The tree of life, we need to remember, was in the Garden of Eden. This brings us all the way back to Genesis. Remember the tree of life? There were two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God commanded Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of good and evil, but they disobeyed. They rebelled. They chose to reject God's authority and go their own way, and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They fell into sin and rebellion and all of humanity with them. And because of that, God sent them out of the garden and 
set a cherubim to guard the garden, to guard the tree of life, so that they would not eat it and be eternally in this independence from God. God blocks in his mercy, blocks humanity access to the tree of life so that they would not experience the horror of living apart from him in a broken relationship from him forever. But now, now the way to the tree of life is open. The tree of life is, is in the great city, in the place of God's presence. We can no longer live independently of God because God is with us. God is present in the city. He is the source of light. His glory radiates through the city so there is no need for sun or moon. He is the source of life here where his throne sits, a throne that is above every other throne. And here is perhaps the most amazing thing of all. In verse 4 of chapter 22, we read, They will see his face. What a stunning claim. They, we, will see his face. Remember back in Exodus, chapter 33, verse 20, we read this. God says this to Moses. He says, but you cannot see my face, for no one may see my face and live. How can a human being gaze upon the face of God and, and live? Moses couldn't. Not, not, not just not because he's human, but because he's fallen, because he's sinful, and God is perfectly holy. So how can you look upon God and live? So do you see? Look back at verse 7 of chapter 21. God says this, Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. My sons is what the text literally says, and that includes men and women. This is, this is we will be God's children. Sonship in the ancient world was about uh, looking like your father. In the ancient world, sons almost always did what their fathers did. Here, God calls us sons, his, his children, because in the new creation, we will be like him. We will see his face because we will be holy as he is holy. Not simply justified, not simply forgiven, but actually made holy. Not only will the penalty of sin be gone, sin will be gone. The things that we struggle with now will be gone. The things we fall into, the things that that are dangerous for us to play with, sin will be gone. We will be made holy. We will reflect our Father's holiness. We will see his face. Before I conclude, I want to ask this fourth question, this fourth category of observations. What, What is offered Back in chapter 21, verse 6, the one who sits upon the throne that is above every other throne speaks, the one, the one who is the temple, the one who is the light, the one from whom the river of life flows speaks these incredible words to us. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. The image of thirst, our thirsting for God is used regularly throughout Scripture, particularly in the Psalms, to depict our desire, our longing for God. We were created for God. We were created to know Him, to love Him, to walk with Him, to be like Him, to, to see Him. Psalm 63, 1. 
We read, you, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. We were made for God. Our fulfillment and satisfaction will be found only in him. So let me speak a moment to those of you who are with us this morning who have not put your faith in Jesus, the Lamb of the Revelation, the one who was slain for you. God invites you to come to him to receive water without cost. The offer of new life in Jesus is, is a free gift of grace. Come and, and have water without cost. And I want to say to you that you were made for God, that you were made to know him, to love him, to live in intimate fellowship with him, to see his face. This is God's longing for you, and your deepest longing is for him, even if you don't recognize it, even if you're trying to satisfy it with other things in this created world, in this realm now, you will never find satisfaction and peace because you hunger and thirst for Jesus. And he stands before you today saying, come, come receive water without cost. Come receive my grace. Come receive my love. Come to me for water without cost. To all of those of you who have put your faith in Jesus, the Lamb of the Revelation, the one who was slain for you, invites, invites us to come. We, we need to remember that the invitation we received is the same, to come and receive water without cost. That we don't, we don't earn it. We don't merit it. No, we receive it as a gift. His love, His grace, His mercy, His forgiveness, His spirit. The water of life flows from His throne as a gift, and we receive it, and we anticipate the marvels of this text, the glory that awaits, the new creation, the new Jerusalem, the new city, the new holy of holies, this city where God will be present with us, where there will be no need for a son because God and the Lamb will be its light, the, the city where the gates will never be closed because there is no night, and we will see his face. He will write his name upon our foreheads. I have no doubt that we have all heard the expression, perhaps used it, I may not know what the future holds, but I do know who holds the future. After walking through this text this morning, we need to acknowledge, we're forced to acknowledge that that's not exactly accurate. No, we, we don't know all the particular details of how human history will unfold before the end, but we do know what the future holds, and it is utterly glorious, utterly mind-blowing in its sheer glory and goodness. What we all need to grasp is that life at its very best in this world will still leave you longing for something more because we were created for more. We were not created to live in this fallen Creation in this fallen world where sin reigns with sickness and pain and tears and mourning and death. We were not created to live under the curse, the curse of sin and all the injustice and all the horrors that are part of this world and our experience in it. C.S. Lewis writes, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We were. 
We were made for another world, a new heaven and a new earth, a new created order, a new Jerusalem, life in God's presence. Listen, God is, even now, he is at work reversing the curse. Even right now, his salvation is breaking into this world. He is at work making all things new. And one day, all will be restored. All will be as he intends. All will be set right. The curse will be vanquished. And we will experience unimaginable glory and delight and intimacy with God, our creator with Christ our Savior, with our God and King. And we will see His face. Amen.